Well, last week we began a series in the book of Exodus, and so if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn there to the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. We saw last week from the end of Genesis with the family of Jacob and his sons in Egypt that we fast forward 400 years or so to pick up the story as it advances in the book of Exodus. So still in Egypt, 400 years later, Exodus tells us that the 70 people in this extended family has now grown considerably. They are nation-like in their size, possibly over a million or more. They are many and they are mighty. And this is what was promised to Abraham in the book of Genesis. There would be many that come from Abraham. He would be a multitude. God would multiply them. But that's alarming for someone like Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In his mind, they are too many and too mighty. And so he subjugates these people. He enslaves them and beats them, abuses them. He even makes it Egyptian law that every male born of the Hebrews would be killed. Now we saw it last week, the, the conviction and the courage of these Hebrew midwives to not obey Pharaoh's law and to save, who knows, countless many children perhaps. But we shouldn't miss the overall tenor of these days. These are dark days. And not every Hebrew child was saved. Surely many were killed by the Egyptians. We know that has to be the case when we observe the desperate actions of Moses' mother in Exodus 2. Remember, she kept her baby hidden for three months, for as long as she could, until she couldn't hide the baby any longer. And she desperately then put him in a basket, in the river, in hopes that somehow, someone would not only find him, but not kill him. That's a desperate mom in desperate circumstances. And yes, Moses was saved, that's great, but we should assume that that was by far the exception in those days, not the rule. We have some bright spots in the first couple chapters of Exodus but they actually stand out against a bigger backdrop of darkness and evil. These are days of slavery and abuse and infanticide and intense suffering. These are bitter days. That's why later on in the story of Exodus, when God tells his people to have this yearly meal to celebrate the Exodus, the departure from Egypt, they are to eat bitter herbs it represented the bitter circumstances of Egypt. So where was God in these days? Had God forgotten what was going on? He had, had he not seen? Had he turned a blind eye? Had he forgotten about his promises? Well, no. We saw last week God was up to something, even though it was unseen, and even though he hadn't yet began speaking once again. 
It was back 400 years or so that God last spoke to his people, at least according to the biblical record. In fact, just flip back to Genesis 46 to see it. Genesis 46 before we get to Exodus. According to Genesis, here's the last time God had spoken, let alone shown up and revealed himself in some visible, powerful way. In Genesis 46, verse 3, he says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. So God's been there all along, but he's been silent. He's at work, no doubt, but he's at work in surprising and unexpected ways. And so we can perceive his hidden hand in the protection of life through the Hebrew midwives. And we can see his hidden hand in the raising up and protecting of Moses. And we can even see something of his purposes in his people's suffering. Their suffering, as hard as it was, as evil as it was, it served a greater good of jarring God's people out of comfort and ease and contentment to remain in Egypt till who knows when. And that suffering also goaded them into crying out to God for help. That's when circumstances are ripe for God to step in. So just look down to the last few verses of chapter 2. We saw them last week. We'll begin with this in our reading. It says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Well, now, on to chapter 3, and let me read all 22 verses for us. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I've sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, Exodus 3 is the first half of the story of God's call on Moses' life and ministry. We'll see the second half next week in chapter 4. It's tempting to think of these chapters being about Moses, and they are, but they're not, not really. I suppose we read a lot of Bible stories with a a human protagonist in view. We're looking for that one to identify with, naturally so. That's how stories go. That's how God has hardwired us in some ways. But with a lot of Bible stories, God is the protagonist. God is the mover and shaker. God is the active one. God is the one who reveals and speaks. And that's certainly the case here in the book of Exodus. It's about God first and foremost. So let me suggest five aspects of God in this chapter. Five ways in which God reveals himself in the call of Moses. First, he's the God who shows up. He's the God who shows up. Again, don't forget that before this, God hadn't spoken, let alone revealed himself visibly for 400 or more years. 
We saw at the end of chapter 2, God sees, God hears, God remembers, God knows. But it's been some time even since then. According to Acts 7, Moses had been shepherding sheep among the Midianites for 40 years. And it was at age 40 that he fled from Egypt. So now at the ripe age of 80, God is beginning to show up. But that's, that's news. That's news to Moses. He, he isn't looking for God to show up. He's not that day up the mountain called Mount Horeb, later to be known as Sinai, same place. He's not going there because he knows Sinai so significant. It's not yet. It's called the mountain of God in our passage in view of what's to come, not what has already happened. You see, God's timing is not our own, whether we're talking about 40 years before Moses begins to ponder whether he might be a kind of deliverer, or 40 years more with him shepherding sheep far away among the Midianites, God's timing is not our own. In fact, sometimes it's shocking how sudden his timing can be or how slow his timing can be. And sometimes it's shocking when he does show up. Sometimes the way he shows up is shocking. So notice verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, verse 2 says angel of the Lord. If you notice, verse 4 talks about the Lord saw and God called out to him. So like some other places in scripture, the angel of the Lord here is both distinguishable from God and is also equated with God. Not every use of angel of the Lord means something godlike. It can just be God's messenger, an angel. But here in this place, the overlap is unmistakable. The angel of the Lord is the Lord and is God. And so we have good reason to suspect that the angel of the Lord here is the second person of the Trinity. This is likely the pre-incarnate Christ. And his divine presence is shown in that typical way with fire, a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. And when God made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis 15, it was a fire that passed between these sacrifice animals, signifying God's presence was cutting the deal, you could say. When Ezekiel gets a vision of heaven, he sees a throne room and fire all around. The same is true in Revelation about the throne room of heaven. He sees fire. And of course, later on in the book of Exodus, we'll see God showing up with fire uh, left and right almost. Here in Exodus 3, it's not your typical fire because the bush was burning but not consumed. And that's what got Moses' attention, not that a bush was burning, but that it kept burning. And so he curiously went towards it. He gazed upon it. And that's when God said, you cannot draw near. It's even more direct in the Hebrew. Oh, hold it right there. Hold up. You can't draw near. Moses is told to take off his sandals, a sign of reverence in that culture. God has made the ground holy. 
Now, this is ordinary ground. This is an ordinary place. The only thing that made the place holy is the presence of God. But make no mistake, the presence of God has made common dirt holy, and Moses must respond accordingly. God introduces himself. I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And with that, Moses hid his face and was afraid. So we're off to a great start. We're off to a glorious start. God not only hears and sees and remembers, but he comes, he shows up, he reveals, he speaks, and he's about to act. Notice verse 8, I have come down. Why? Well, because he cares. So secondly, we're talking about the God who cares here in this passage. Like the ending of chapter 2, where God hears and sees and knows, so the same kind of themes are repeated here for Moses directly, and they're told at greater length and detail than at the end of chapter 2. So verse 7, I've seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Now, like we said last week, some of this is humanized language applied to God. The technical term for it is an anthropopathism. An anthropopathism. It means from man's perspective. God doesn't really see like he didn't see before. He doesn't really hear like he couldn't hear before. He doesn't remember like he had forgotten for a time. These are the way we think of things. What it means is God is going to act. I've come down to deliver them, notice verse 8, out of the hands of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good land flowing with milk and honey. So there's a deliverance out of and a deliverance unto. It's not just a delivering out of. It means that God has bigger purposes than just ending their slavery or curtailing their suffering as good and right is as that is. He has a plan to bring them into the promised land, the land of blessing, the land of his presence, a land of his peace and his worship among his people. Remember from last week, that was no small part of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God said, you'll be many and you'll be blessed and I will give you land. Well, in the opening pages of Exodus, the people are many, but they don't have land. They're far away from the land, but that's what God is addressing in the book of Exodus. The God who cares is the God who intends to draw near and to pull in. The God who cares is the God who's faithful to his promises of old, no matter how long it seems like they've been on hold. The God who cares is, yes, the God who redresses evil and and curtails suffering, but but beyond that, he's the God who cares enough to be in covenant relationship with a sinful people through sacrifice. He's the God who reveals himself. And by the way, there is no God quite like this in the marketplace of religions available to you. What God out there feels, what God out there has compassion, 
What God out there is both transcendent, beyond. He's up there in a sense. And he's also near. He comes down. He cares. What God is like that? Other religions have a God that maybe is all-powerful, all-controlling, but unapproachable, disinterested, unaffected by things. Others have a God that's so near, it's everywhere, it's everything. It's that tree and that squirrel, and it's in you too. You, you have a little bit of divinity in you. But only the God of the Bible is like this. He is lofty and he's near. He cares. And when we talk about the God who shows up and the God who cares, we have to remember where those themes are headed in the Bible later on. Don't they land squarely on Jesus Christ? The most important time and in the biggest way that God had ever showed up and revealed and spoke up was in Christ. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He came. He showed up. Why? He cares. And he showed us how much he cared not just by coming but by dying. That's what it means in John 3.16 when it said God gave his son, gave him to the cross for us that we might have eternal life. Well, back to Exodus. Thirdly, we see the God who sends, the God who sends. Verse 10, come, I will send you, Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, God had just said in verse 8, that God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. And now he says in verse 10, Moses, you will bring my people out. Well, there's no tension or inconsistency here. This is all over the Bible. What it means is that God will do it, but he'll use Moses as a human instrument. The plan won't rest on Moses' power or his wisdom. It's all God's power, God's wisdom, God's plan. But in that plan, he chooses to wield his power and wisdom through a broken, fallible, weak, sometimes sinful instrument, in this case, Moses. It's like the Apostle Paul taught us. That God is glorified in our weakness so that when anything works out, he gets the glory, not us. Well, Moses hasn't learned that lesson yet, and so he's going to have some concerns with this plan. In fact, let's just zoom out a bit on chapter 3 and 4. I said already it's an interchange between God and Moses about his call. Well, in total, Moses will respond to God's call five different times, five different ways. And they all express some reluctance on his part. He'll ask a couple of questions at first, then he'll offer a couple of excuses after that, and then he'll simply end by just protesting and pleading that God finds someone else, not him. 
Well, we'll see the first of those two this week and then the rest next week in chapter 4. But here's the first in verse 11. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? That question may seem reasonable, especially under these circumstances. Moses had been a wanted man in Egypt. Moses killed a guy in Egypt. You could argue that Moses isn't the man for the job on account of the fact that he's a murderer. You'll remember from last week that one time when Moses tried to to make peace between two brawling Israelites, they mocked him. They said, what are you supposed to be, some kind of deliverer? And at any rate, Moses was indeed inadequate for the assignment, for the assignment of breaking free a million or more people who were held captive in Egyptian slavery. Who am I? It even sounds humble or commendable, right? Oh, oh, that we would have more people in this world who who had this kind of humility and, and said, who am I for this great task? It's certainly a relatable question on a personal and existential level today. This is the the question being asked more than any other, it seems. Who am I? We're all trying to figure out who we are. And certainly asking God for insight about who you are is a much better place to start than, say, Facebook or uh, a gender therapist or the, the, the Enneagram test or any other personality test. But having said all that, ultimately Moses' question was misguided. It was misguided. You see, God had just revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush that wouldn't be consumed. This is the God of creation he's talking to. God had just made common dirt holy. God had already revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their family... These were people with shortcomings, and God used them anyway. God did much through them, even though the plan didn't rest on them. And also consider that God didn't ask Moses what he thought. He wasn't consulting Moses. Well, what do you think about me using you, Moses? Huh? He didn't invite him to apply for the job. God said, I will send you. And we know that his question, who am I, is misguided as well because of how God responds. It's gentle, but it is a definite redirection. Verse 12, God said, I will be with you. I will be with you. Isn't that a curious response for the question, who am I? God didn't answer that question. Moses' question was about Moses. God's answer is primarily about God. And yet, that's all the answer that Moses really needed. He needed redirection. The most important thing about Moses wasn't Moses. It was God's presence. You can think of the ways we might have guessed that God would answer that question. Who am I under these circumstances? We might imagine God would say, Oh, don't sell yourself short. Come on, you can do this. Buck up, little guy. You got it in you. I know. No, God didn't give him a pep talk to boost his self-image. 
He said, I will be with you. Eyes on me, right? You can imagine a, a child anticipating his first airplane ride, asking dad, maybe at the age of seven, dad, how am I going to pay for the ticket? And then saying, what's this thing of going through security? What am I supposed to take off? And where's my ID? You carry a wallet, dad. I don't have a wallet. Where's my ID? What am I going to do? And you can imagine a dad just smiling and saying, I'll be with you. Like, Pay for it. I've already paid for it. Your ID, I, I'll have it. I'll tell you what to do. I'll be with you. That's all that matters. And God, in his kindness, also gives Moses a sign. This will be a sign for you, a sign that I sent you. When it's all said and done, we'll be back on this same mountain worshiping. Notice that's a sign in the future which means Moses has to trust God now and step out in faith in view of a sign that's to come. That's how God often works. This is the God who sends. He sends us as well. He sends Christians into the world to represent him. We're not quite the same as Moses. Moses is a special figure in the scriptures. He's a, a type of Christ. He's a, a real deliverer. He had a special calling. But every Christian, in a sense, has been called to do what God has them to do, whatever it is. And some things we have in common, like sharing our faith with non-Christians. And so we remember at a point like this, Jesus said the same thing, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. So with all authority, I send you into the world as my disciples to make disciples. I will be with you. Fourthly, we see here the God who has a name. He has a name. And here we come to Moses' second question. He says, uh, let's say I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Now here, again, we can think of some positives, but maybe more negatives. On a positive level, we should all want to know more about God. That's all Moses asked for. Can I know more? We reveal more? Who can, who can have any problem with Moses wanting to know more? Apparently, Moses was right to speculate whether some would receive him skeptically. He left on bad terms. He'd been gone 40 years. And this whole story on the mountain that day, it's rather fantastical to show up 40 years later and say, I've been a shepherd in Midian and one day a bush was on fire and God spoke to me from it and he said, I should come get you and get you out. You can imagine some eyes being rolled. However, negatively, Moses begins this question with a bad word, if. Do you see it? If I come to the people, wait, if? You haven't made up your mind yet? God said you will. Well, if I, let's say I do. It would also seem that Moses might be emphasizing the I too much in the equation here as well. 
If I come to the people and I say to them, and they ask me, what do I say to them? God has already pointed out that this is about him. God will be with him. God will give the sign. God will give you what you need to know. And God had already revealed to Moses that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's enough to represent God to those people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But rather than just backside Moses, the other side of the mountain, God once again is gracious, but nevertheless corrective in his response. God said to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. This is God's personal name. I am. Four Hebrew letters in in Hebrew. It would be like Y-H-W-H in English. Uh, Hebrew originally was written without vowels, and so it's just consonants, and you either had to guess the vowels, or later on they added them in for our convenience. This is Yahweh. In our English Bibles, it's designated the Lord with Lord in all caps. I am who I am. What's that mean? Well, it means that God is a bit mysterious. He is a bit undefinable. He isn't like you or me. He's self-defining. He's self-revealing. He is eternal. I am, not I was or I will be. I am. He's unchanging. He's transcendent. He's self-existing. There's a theological word for this, aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means in himself, aseity, a Latin word. God exists in himself. He doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't have any outside counsel, any outside power. He doesn't need anything. I'd encourage you this afternoon or maybe in your community group later this week to ponder what God's personal name implies for you and for your life, and for your circumstances? What does it mean to have a God that is this lofty and big and glorious and self-defining and unchanging and eternal and self-existing? His name is Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In fact, in later generations, this I am name will take on an added significance when Jesus of Nazareth shows up and begins teaching, and he uses this phrase in Greek, ego eimi, I, I am, about himself. Uh, These I am statements are found in John's gospel most of all. John 6, 48 I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And then John 8, 58, the big one. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And if you think, maybe we're making too much of this, connecting Jesus' use of I am to 
Exodus 3, but the next verse in John 8 tells us what his opponents thought of it. They picked up stones to throw at him. He said before Abraham was, I am. They said, that's blasphemy because they didn't believe he was God. But Jesus insisted he was. I am the good shepherd, John 10. I am the resurrection and the life, John 11. Jesus has a name. He's got more than one. He is the I am. And he is also Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. God has bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. So Paul wrote in Philippians 2. And lastly, we come to the God who is certain. The God who is certain. If you glance down, you'll see that verses 16 to 22 reissue and unpack a little bit more Moses' commission. It was given just in sentence form in verse 10. And after a quick dialogue, now God reissues it, this time emphasizing two things. That God will accomplish all this and the outcome is certain. Those two things. It takes a few verses, I think seven verses in all, to cover that. But the point is simple. And so it won't require much of our time, especially after all that's been established by the verses before it. God will do this. The outcome is certain. So verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt. Verse 18, they, the people, Moses, will listen to your voice. You and the elders, verse 18, shall go to the king of Egypt and you will say, uh, our God says we should go into the desert for three days and make sacrifice. God says here, I know that he won't let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And so I will stretch out my hand. I will strike Egypt. I will do wonders in it. And then he will let you go. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, this is what unfolds in the rest of the book of Moses. God will do it. He will use Moses, though he's in a current state of reluctance as we're studying the book together. And God will deliver his people out of bondage and start to bring them toward this promised land. In fact, we can put it in past tense because we're on this side of these events, not that side. It's not that God will, he has. The Bible records for us what God promises he will do and records so much of what he has done. So much as we could say in the rear view mirror. Not just the exodus, but all that. Not just the promised land in the days of Joshua, though that too. Not just the raising up of King David in the book of 1 Samuel, that as well. Not just the building of the temple. Not just the days of the prophets when the people were exiled to Babylon, but then brought back. All that's in the rearview mirror. We can say not only God said it would happen, but it did happen. He said it. Not least, Christ's coming. God said it would happen. 
after 400 long years of silence before anyone was speaking again, then a man named John the Baptist came on the scene speaking on behalf of God and pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 2 Corinthians 1 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All of them. All of them funnel through history and into Christ himself. We can know this. We can know this. I love how 1 John emphasizes what we can know. It ends like this. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. So if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that you can know. To come to Christ, to become a Christian, it doesn't mean you know everything. Christians should never be know-it-alls. In fact, Christian the Christian life is a, it's a schoolroom sometimes, isn't it? It's a, it's a long pathway of lifelong learning. But there are some things we come to know and really know. We bank on them. We come to know that we are sinners in need of grace. We come to know that Jesus died on the cross for those very sins. We come to know that he was raised on the third day and he lives forevermore. We come to know that he's real. We come to know that he dwells with us and that's enough. We want you to know that today. We pray you would. Christian, this is who we have come to know. The I am, Yahweh, God in the flesh, the one who bears the name that is above all names, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to know him and to love him and to follow him. And to represent him to this world. To speak for him. Not in all the ways that Moses will represent God to Pharaoh. But in some of those ways. We can hear the promise afresh today. That he is with us. And believe that's enough for us. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glorious plan. We thank you for your, well, your mission, Lord, to spread your glory in this world, to make a people for yourself. We thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. We pray, Lord, we would continue to know this and bank on this and believe this and and speak of it. Help us to represent you well in this world. Lord, and help those who are with us who haven't yet come to identify with Jesus, perhaps to do so today as you reveal yourself to them, sort of like you revealed yourself to Moses who wasn't looking for you that day and wasn't expecting you to speak that day, but perhaps today, you would speak and show up and show how much you care for the first time in the lives of some here. We pray it for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.